Hi everybody, my name is Zhang, founder of Nhà Zhang Yoga, a community that focuses on yoga, wellness and other activities that help unite body, mind and spirit. Our mission is to bring similar-minded people together so that we can lift up each other, support each other and make miracles happen. Today, I'm reading and sharing with you all about a book that I have found truly inspiring and touching, especially in a spiritual way. It's called Learning True Love by Sister Chen Kheng. So let's get started. Learning True Love Practicing Buddhism in a time of war. A nun's journey from Vietnam to France and the history of Thich Nhat Hanh's Buddhist community. Chapter 12 Leaving Vietnam In June 1968, Thay Nhat Hạnh asked me to come to Hong Kong to bring him a message from the Unified Buddhist Church, give him news from the School of Youth for Social Service, and tell him what we in Vietnam wanted him to do. He needed to know whether he should risk coming back to Vietnam or whether he should stay overseas as a representative of the Buddhist movement. I met privately with most of the leaders of the Unified Buddhist Church and all of them felt that Thay should not come back. Thay said that he was, they said that he was the most skillful among the Unified Buddhist Church leaders in communicating with the West, recalling the time when he had been instrumental in getting the United Nations to investigate human rights violations under the Ziet regime. But they asked Tay to be careful about any statements he made, as they were under the scrutiny of the government of Saigon, and anything he said, even overseas, would affect them. At that time, I was vice president of the Unified Buddhist Church Committee to help the war victims, and Tay Quang Lian, the committee's president, asked me to try to raise funds from international human, humanitarian organizations why I was out of the country. In Vietnam, the only food aid for war victims was from the United States government and it was difficult for our social workers to carry United States aid, US aid, to victims who had just been bombed by the same government. When I left for France in 1963 to submit my thesis, it had been easy to obtain an exit visa as a government employee. Although in 1968, I was still a government employee on the Faculty of Science, since no one in our department had asked me to go on official business, it was difficult for me to get permission, permission to leave, even for one week. 
Finally, the head of our department allowed me to go two weeks for family affairs. Rich and powerful people could live and re-enter Vietnam as they pleased, but ordinary people needed to wait six months just to obtain a tourist exit visa. First, an application had to be submitted to the visa service of the Central Police Center. Then the application was sent to eight offices of the police center, requesting endorsement of the application, identity card verification, taxes, and other references. If the application were declared clean, it would be sent to the Minister of Interior Affairs, who would send it to various other offices before it came back to him for his signature. Then it will be sent back to the visa service at the police center. I went to the visa service and filled out an application. Then I asked to see the director and I showed him a telegram from my brother Nghiep, which read, brother in Hong Kong seriously ill, come immediately. I also showed him permission, permission from the university to go to Hong Kong for two weeks. The director of the visa service kindly invited me into his personal office. I had no idea he was asking for a bribe. I waited a week and then went to see him again. This time, he told me plainly, If you want me to be kind to you, You have to be kind to me. I had never been confronted by such corruption before, and I didn't know how to respond. I left his office extremely disappointed, not knowing what to do. Then I got the idea that my cousin's cousin, Colonel Saad, the chief of police in Saigon, might be able to help me. I went to his office and told him about my encounter at the visa service and immediately he picked up the phone, called the director of visas and asked him to help this young cousin. I felt embarrassed returning to the director's office and was quite surprised to see the change in his attitude. He told me that to get an exit visa quickly, I had to bring my application personally to each of the eight offices in the police center. Because I was presented as a relative to relative relative to Colonel Saad, I was allowed to move freely from one office to another. But when it came time to verify my political background, the matter became complicated. The director of the political information office was very warm, chatting with me while his assistant went to get my file. Still, he interrogated me gently about how it could have been that I, from South Vietnam, was a relative of Colonel Saad, who was from Central Vietnam. I said that the sixth sister of my mother married Prince Ong Le of Central Vietnam, who was the uncle of Colonel Saad's wife. When the director's assistant handed me handed him my file, 
He looked. She looked at me suspiciously. Then the director looked through quite a few papers and finally asked, "Oh, and you have also been the president of the Vatnak Buddhist University Student Union, yes?" I recalled Tai Ming Chou's statement to the police about my calling for peace, but I smiled back calmly. You see my file. Yes, that is me. Now you can kindly sign my application for an exit visa. He said, "Please come back tomorrow." But after that, he refused to see me. During those days, most of the eleven thousand war victims who had taken refuge on the School of Youth for Social Service campus. Were still living there, and were in need of medical help, as the danger of malaria from mosquitoes was serious, and the need for supplies such as rice, cooking oil, and cooking utensils was great. Even though there was a group of friends in charge of each aspect of the work, I had to come to the campus often and arrange for their supplies. I also continued my work on the Faculty of Sciences, preparing exams for my botany students. Along with all that, I stopped by the police center every morning to pursue my visa application. One day, a clerk confided in me. We know that your secret communist name is Dung. You will never be allowed to leave the country. I was shocked. I had never had a secret name. I had only called for peace in a thoughtful way without taking sides, and I always signed in full. The only name I had, I ever had, the name my family and I always signed. The name that my family had given me, Gao Ngafu. Perhaps it has something to do with Tai Ming Chou denouncing me, but I knew I was not communist, so I decided to speak directly to the director of political information to clear this up. The next morning, I went to his office. As usual, he refused to see me. But this time, I insisted that I had an important matter to discuss with him. He had a clerk tell me that he was sending my file to the visa service that every day, that very day, and that it was not necessary to see him. He did send my file to the visa service, complete with all the information about my peace work. President of Vatnak Buddhist University Student Union. Led assembly to an agreement to call for peace in March 1966, arrested in Huai and jailed for two weeks for transporting lotus in a sea of fire. Close friend of Nyachi Mai, who immolated herself for peace, name appeared in the New York Times in May 17, 1967, in a five-column article calling for peace after Mai's immolation. Assistant of Yatai Yatai in his peace work, secret name Dang, relative of Colonel Sa. The next day, the visa service sent my file to the Ministry of Interior, where no one would talk with me about my case. I 
knew that if the Ministry of Interior read all that loaded information about my working for peace, I would never get a visa. So I tried to intervene, but it was impossible. Then one day, in a chat with my brother-in-law, Nguyen Van Zoy, who was a national tennis champion, I was complaining how difficult it was to get a, an exit visa, and he told me that I was too naive. He said that to get a visa to Hong Kong, Thailand, or anywhere in Asia, the required bribe was $20,000. For one to Europe or the US, $100,000 was needed. But he also told me that many of the corrupt officials were friends of his. He had taught them how to play tennis and that he could get me an exit visa for nothing. It was true. Three days later, my visa was ready at the Ministry of Interior. But when I went there to pick it up, the guard wouldn't let me enter the visa office. He said that I would receive notification when I could pick up my exit visa from the police center's visa service. I had received permission from my department at the university to be absent from July 15th to July 30th, and it was already July 21st. I had only nine days left. I told the guard that if I waited for the proper notification to pick up my exit visa from the police, I might not have any days left. While I was arguing with him, a ministry officer overheard us and asked my name. When I told him my story, he promised to look into it for me. A few minutes later, he came back and said that my file was complete except for one signature. And the next day, he gave me an exit visa for one, for one week only and a document that I had to take the, to the visa service at the police center to receive my passport. That afternoon, with the help of a friend who worked for Air France in Saigon, I was able to buy a ticket to Hong Kong for the next day without having to pay in foreign currency. Then, when I went to the British Embassy to pick up an entry visa for Hong Kong, I somehow thought I would just pick up, pick it up, since I had a, an exit visa from Vietnam and an reference ticket. But the embassy official told me that it would take 48 hours to process my application. I said that I had only seven days exit visa from the Vietnamese government and that I needed to go as soon as possible. But he didn't seem at all interested in helping me. I stood there, following each breath, evoking the name of Avalokitesvara with my calm mind. And suddenly I remembered meeting the vice consul of the British Embassy when he visited the School of Youth for Social Service office, office along with a representative of Oxfam. I immediately asked if I could see him and with his intervention, I obtained an in-entry visa in 20 minutes. However, instead of a seven-day visa, they gave me a five-day one because the rule was that one had to leave Hong Kong 48 hours before his Vietnamese exit visa expired. 
Then I went to get a healthcare certificate, a health certificate, and finally I went back home at four o'clock to spend the rest of my time with mother. Then I got home. When I got home, I received word that my plane for Hong Kong would leave at five o'clock the next evening. I also received a message that a friend wanted me to come to his house immediately to pick up 500 baby chicks that had been sent from Dala as a gift for peasants in several villages outside of Saigon. As I was the only one who knew where the friend lived, I had to do it by myself. My car was broken, and the only way I could carry the chicks was on the back of my motorbike. In four boxes, visualizing myself picking up all those baby chicks. If any of the boxes fell, I drove in a very mindful way. When I arrived at the School of Youth for Social Service office with the baby chicks, it was almost dark. I talked with Tai Thanh Vân and other friends, telling them that I was leaving for Hong Kong the next day. Tai Thanh Vân said only. Please tell Thay Nhat Hai that we have been cut off from the Unified Buddhist Church and Vat Hai University, and tell him that we need to re-establish our legal status. If he keeps making statements calling for peace, we will never be legally recognized by this regime. Tell him he has to decide between advocating peace and doing social work. I listened. Quietly, knowing that only Tai Nhat Hai could explain to him that it was impossible to define reality like that. In those days in Saigon, there was a nine o'clock curfew. By the time I finished my meetings at the School of Youth for Social Service, it was already eight thirty, and it was a rainy, overcast day with no moon or stars. And the light on my motorbike was broken. I had to drive back in the dark. The words of a woman refugee, still living on the School of Youth for Social Service campus, came to me as I was riding through the countryside. Aren't you afraid of ghosts? There are many dead bodies along the five miles of road before the Gojai Bridge, especially the cemetery. Running my fingers through the hair of the skinny boy clutching her arm, I said, "I worry more about hungry fellows like him than I do about ghosts. I have seen so many ghost-like war victims. Why should I be afraid of the disembodied?" Breathing in deeply the fragrant air of my last night in Saigon. My heart was heavy with concern for thousands of these desperate little boys and girls. Although it was pitch black, I knew that stretch of road like the palm of my hand. I knew every curve and every hole, and I was not afraid. I visualized how beautiful the little houses along the road had been six months before, among the papaya trees. The bougainvillea, red hibiscus, and yellow alamanda flowers. 
I saw in my mind's eyes the beautiful fields of corn, peanuts, manioc, sweet potatoes, and jasmine. But now, although I could not exactly see, I knew I was riding through burned fields, ruined houses, and broken tombs. I hadn't even noticed the cemetery along this road until after the May offensive two months earlier. When dozens of tombs were bombed and corpses in broken coffins were exposed, as I approached Cochere Bridge, my motorbike stopped suddenly, caught in a tangle of barbed wire, and it fell down. Men's voices began shouting, "Raise your hands high!" and lights flashed in my face. Then I heard the sounds of guns being cocked to fire, and I raised my hand straight up to the sky and said, "I am a social worker here to help war victims at the Tanfu refugee camp." Refugee camp in trenches along both sides of the road, soldiers pointed their guns at me. This part of the road was considered half rice, half beans, controlled by both sides. If these soldiers were from the communist side, they might abduct someone whose identity card was that of a nationalist employee. So I hesitated to show my identity card. Finally, I reassured myself that neither side could hate a social worker trying to help war victims. When he saw my card. The soldier urged me to go home quickly, because the curfew in this area was eight o'clock, not nine. It took five minutes for these for the soldiers to untangle my motorbike from their barbed wire, and I jumped onto my bike, only to, to discover that both tires were flat. I asked at a nearby house if I could leave my vehicle there, and I tried to hitchhike home. At that time of night. There were no taxis or pedicabs, and hardly anyone was on the road. Finally, a soldier, a soldier on a motorbike, picked me up and drove me a few kilometers. And three different drivers took me the rest of the way home. When I arrived at home of my sister Xie, where I was living with my mother and four nephews. I was grateful to still be alive. My sister's house was locked tight, and there was no doorbell. I went to the back window and called to my 12-year-old nephew, Ru, thinking how excited he would be to see me home so late after the curfew. But Ru, knowing nothing about my narrow escape from abduction and death. Abduction and death, or death, greeted me at the window, casually asking, "Are you calling me?" I began to laugh uncontrollably, uncontrollably, and I was hardly able to say, "Yes, Wu, please do open the door." The next day, July twenty third, nineteen sixty eight, I said farewell to my mother. Expecting to be gone for less than a week, as I boarded the Air France flight to Hong Kong at five o'clock in the afternoon, I had no idea this might be the last time I would see Vietnam.
arrived in Hong Kong at 8 o'clock in the evening. In Vietnam, I knew how to avoid being followed by secret police, and I did the same in Hong Kong. Certainly, certain that I had not been followed by anyone. I caught a taxi and told the driver the address Thay Nhat Hanh had given me. I walked up to the guest house and knocked on the door. Thay opened the door and when he saw me, his eyes opened very wide. A week earlier, I had told him that it was nearly impossible for me to obtain a visa. So when he saw me, he could only utter, Oh, oh, nothing more. I also was quite shocked. Thay was pale and looked 10 years older than when he had left Vietnam. I had not imagined that two years in the West would destroy his health so quickly. I wished I could sob in his arms, but at the same time, at that time, Thay had not yet taught us hugging meditation. Tears filled my eyes, and right away I began to tell him about many of the events I had not been able to write about in my letters. Thay listened attentively and served me a cup of oolong tea. Then, considering each word carefully, he said that if the monks wished him to stay in the West, he would desperately need an exit an assistant to help him bring the message of the suffering of the Vietnamese people to the world. He asked me to join him in his work, saying that I could be more effective in bringing the world to halt, to a halt outside the country. He asked me to join him in his work, in this work, saying that I could be more effective in bringing the war to a halt outside of the country. Because I had lived the war, he said, I would be able to communicate in to communicate the innocent message of the poor, illiterate peasants who were under the bombs. I would not need to speak in the sophisticated language of the intellectuals who supported one side or the other, but in the plain, simple talk of the the country people who were the victims. Thay invited invited me to be his assistant in this peace work and also to raise funds to support war victims and orphans as the high monks in the Unified Buddhist Church had asked me to do. I was speechless. I had never imagined not returning home. I couldn't believe the School of Youth for Social Service would survive even one week without me. I smiled sadly and told Thay I could not stay to assist him. The next day, Thay took me to Polin Chan Temple, high up in the mountains on Lantau Island, near Hong Kong. And we did walking meditation all afternoon. The atmosphere was so serene. That evening, we joined the monks in their meditation, and we stayed at the temple overnight. 
Tai continued to insist that I consider his request to be his assistant. He said it would be the best way for us to realize our idea of service at that time. The next day, my mind was clearer. I remembered Tai Tang Van asking me to convey to Tai Nyatai how he had to decide between peace work or social work, and I realized that Tai Tang Van was also telling me the same thing. Since Tay Nhat Hạnh had left Vietnam, Tay Thanh Văn had silently disapproved my peace activities, not because he did not want peace, but because for him, rural development was already such a great responsibility. When I asked him how we could do rural development without stopping the war, he said that he didn't want to think about it. From time to time, he could not help uttering a few words that had hurt me deeply. When I proposed that our School of Youth for Social Service teaching staff offer to train the unified Buddhist church monks and nuns in church administration and counting as a way to show the unified Buddhist church how capable we were and to help the school attain legal status, Thay Thanh Văn has said, No, we want nothing to do with those high monks. If you wish to have them, I suspect you too. I was surprised by the way he said those words. It seemed he was suspicious that I might want to use the School of Youth for Social Service to influence the Unified Buddhist Church leadership for some covert purpose. I wanted to raise the matter with him when my mind was calmer But we both were so busy that we never took the time to talk about it. 25 years later in Plum Village, Thay Nhatai introduced the peace chidi for living peacefully in a community. But we did not yet have this valuable tool. And I regret that many hurts like this were left unaddressed. Reflecting on my disagreements with Thay Thanh Ban, I realized that I had to let him and the School of Youth for Social Service staff work solely at rural development. It would relieve a lot of their difficulties with the Teal regime if they were for a time without me and my peace work. Even though my heart was 100% appreciative of their development work, for the time being, I was more concerned with bringing urgent assistance to the hungry, the orphans, and the victims of war in most desperate areas. At that time, Tay Thanh Văn and the staff of the School of Youth for Social Service thought that they did not have the time or energy to organize teams to rescue war victims or bring food and relief to the war zones. They only helped war victims when the Phu Tho area was bombed, and even then, They only took care of those who were on their own campus. So from 1964 to 1966, when I organized team to teams to go to Binglong in the, in the military zone and to Quang Nam, Sun Khuang, and Sun Ting near the Ho Chi Minh Trail, I did so in the name of the Vat Hai University students 
and after 1966 under my own name. Many school of youth for social service students did join me, but they did so personally, at their risk. In my morning meditation at Paulin Chan Temple in Hong Kong, I saw that I could be more effective in obtaining relief supplies for the social Buddhist rescue committees from overseas than I had been in Vietnam. Because I could send supplies directly to them without having to obtain the agreement of Thay Thanh Vân and the School of Youth for Social Service staff. In Vietnam, I usually raise funds alone to help many Buddhist committees, but the amount was rather small, and Thay Quang Lien had urged me to go overseas to solicit support from humanitarian groups. So I decided to accept Thay Nhat Hanh's invitation to become his assistant. I knew it would be much more pleasant and inspiring to work with Thay than with anyone else. He always took seriously the new ideas that we, the youth, proposed and looked deeply to offer us wise advice. He accepted and extolled everyone with appreciation. I believed his statement that he needed my help because I had great trust in him and appreciated his wisdom. I also knew that he would never expect me to follow him blindly. We always discussed our views about each endeavor thoroughly and he allowed me and, and he allowed my view to complete his. I also knew that peace and social development work were inseparable. If the staff of the School of Youth for Social Service wanted to serve only in the non-war zones, they could do so without my interference. Here I would be able to raise funds for both the School of Youth for Social Service and the local Buddhist relief committees in the 42 provinces of Vietnam. As the assistant of Thay Nhat Hanh, representing the Unified Buddhist Church abroad, I could freely work in all the arena, the uh, areas of suffering of Vietnam by correspondence, by informing those in the West about the real situation in the country. I would help all my friends in Vietnam, including Bác Siêu, the Bodhisattva who, after 50 years, continued to bike to the most remote areas outside Pui to bring rice and care to those who were most destitute. And I could help everyone spiritually by communicating the inspiration and insights of Thay Nhat Hạnh to them. I also would be able to tell Thay the details of each person's situation so he could prescribe the right medicine for each of each in his gentle, inspiring, and loving way. I was able to extend my visa in Hong Kong for only two more weeks, but I was able to enter Japan after that on a three-month tourist visa. While I was there, I applied for a visa to go to France. The French embassy told me that it would take three to six months. In the meantime, I worked in a printing house 
It was my wish that as soon as I could return to Vietnam, I would set up a printing house as a means of self-support for the School of Youth for Social Service. I learned a lot about four-color printing during those months. My tourist visa for France was granted on December 29, 1968, and I boarded a jet for France two weeks later. Thank you.